Third Division, Part 1 of Human All Too Human, a book for free spirits by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Helen Zimmern, 1846-1934. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Aaron Rivera. Third Division, The Religious Life, Part 1. 108. The Double Fight Against Evil. When misfortune overtakes us, we can either pass over it so lightly that its cause is removed, or so that the result which it has on our temperament is altered, through a changing, therefore, of the evil into a good, the utility of which is perhaps not visible until later on. Religion and art, also metaphysical philosophy, work upon the changing of the temperament, partly through the changing of our judgment on events, for instance, with the help of the phrase, Whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth partly through the awakening of a pleasure in pain, in emotion generally, whence the tragic art takes its starting point. The more a man is inclined to twist and arrange meanings, the less he will grasp the causes of evil and disperse them. The momentary mitigation and influence of a narcotic, as for example in toothache, suffices him even in more serious sufferings. The more the dominion of creeds and all arts dispense with narcotics, the more strictly men attend to the actual removing of the evil, which is certainly bad for writers of tragedy. For the material for tragedy is growing scarcer because the domain of pitiless, inexorable fate is growing ever narrower. But worse still for the priests. For they have hitherto lived on the narcotization of human woes. 109. Sorrow is knowledge. How greatly we should like to exchange the false assertions of the priests that there is a God who desires good from us, a guardian and witness of every action, every moment, every thought, who loves us and seeks our welfare in all misfortune. How greatly we would like to exchange these ideas for truths which would be just as healing, pacifying, and beneficial as those errors. But there are no such truths. At most, philosophy can oppose to them metaphysical appearances. At bottom, also untruths. The tragedy consists in the fact that we cannot believe those dogmas of religion and metaphysics if we have strict methods of truth in heart and brain. On the other hand, mankind has, through development, become so delicate, irritable, and suffering that it has need of the highest means of healing and consolation. Whence also the danger arises that man would bleed to death from recognized truth, or, more correctly, from discovered error. Byron has expressed this in the immortal lines, Sorrow is knowledge, they who know the most, must mourn the deepest or the fatal truth. The tree of knowledge is not that of life. For such troubles there is no better help than to recall the stately levity of Horace, at least for the worst hours and eclipses of the soul, and to say with him, Quid aeternis miniorum? Consilis animum fatigas? Cur non sub alta vel plantano vel hac pino jacentes. Footnote. Why harass with eternal designs a mind too weak to compass them? Why do we not, as we lie beneath a lofty plane tree, or this pine, drink while we may? Horace, Odes 3, 2, 11-14, J.M.K. End footnote. But assuredly frivolity or melancholy of every degree is better than a romantic retrospection and desertion of the flag, an approach to Christianity in any form. For according to the present condition of knowledge, it is absolutely impossible to approach it without hopelessly soiling our intellectual conscience and giving ourselves away to ourselves and others. 
Those pains may be unpleasant enough, but we cannot become leaders and educators of mankind without pain. And woe to him who would wish to attempt this and no longer have that clear conscience. 110. The Truth in Religion In the period of rationalism, justice was not done to the importance of religion. Of that there is no doubt. But equally there is no doubt that in the reaction that followed this rationalism, justice was far overstepped. For religions were treated lovingly, even amorously, and, for instance, a deeper, even the very deepest, understanding of the world was ascribed to them, which science has only to strip of its dogmatic garment in order to possess the truth in unmythical form. Religion should, therefore, this was the opinion of all opposers of rationalism, sensu allegorico, with all consideration for the understanding of the masses, give utterance to that ancient wisdom which is wisdom itself, inasmuch as all true science of later times has always led up to it instead of away from it, so that between the oldest wisdom of mankind and all later harmonies, similarity of discernment and a progress of knowledge, in case one should wish to speak of such a thing, rests not upon the nature but upon the way of communicating it. This whole conception of religion and science is thoroughly erroneous, and none would still dare to profess it if Schopenhauer's eloquence had not taken it under its protection. This resonant eloquence which, however, only reached its hearers a generation later. As surely as from Schopenhauer's religious moral interpretations of men and the world much may be gained for the understanding of the Christian and other religions, so surely also is he mistaken about the value of religion for knowledge. Therein, he himself was only a too docile pupil for the scientific teachers of his time, who all worshipped Romanticism and had forsworn the spirit of enlightenment. Had he been born in our present age, he could not possibly have talked about the sensus allegoricus of religion. He would much rather have given honor to truth, as he used to do, with the words, No religion, direct or indirect, either as dogma or as allegory, has ever contained a truth. For each has been born of fear and necessity. Through the byways of reason did it slip into existence. Once, Perhaps, when imperiled by science, some philosophic doctrine has lied itself into its system in order that it may be found there later. But this is a theological trick of the time when a religion already doubts itself. These tricks of theology, which certainly were practiced in the early days of Christianity, as the religion of a scholarly period steeped in philosophy, have led to that superstition of the sensus allegoricus, but yet more the habits of the philosophers especially the half-natures, the poetical philosophers, and the philosophizing artists, to treat all the sensations which they discovered in themselves as the fundamental nature of man in general, and hence to allow their own religious feelings an important influence in the building up of their systems. As philosophers frequently philosophized under the custom of religious habits, or at least under the anciently inherited power of that metaphysical need, they developed doctrinal opinions which really bore a great resemblance to the Jewish or Christian or Indian religious views. A resemblance, namely, such as children usually bear to their mothers, only that in this case the fathers were not clear about that motherhood, as happens sometimes, but in their innocence romanced about a family likeness between all religion and science. Moreover, if all nations were to agree about certain religious matters, for instance the existence of a god, which it may be remarked, is not the case with regard to this point. This would only be an argument against those affirmed matters. For instance, the existence of a god, the consensus genitum and hominum in general can only take place in case of a huge folly. On the other hand, 
There is no consensus omnium sapientium with regard to any single thing, with that exception mentioned in Goethe's lines, Ali di Weissestin, aller der Seiten, lechen und winken und steimen mit ein, torigt auf Besserung der Toren zu harren, Kinder der Klugheit, o habet die Nähren, eben zum Nähren auch, wie sie's gehört. Footnote. All greatest sages of all latest ages will chuckle and slyly agree. Tis folly to wait till a fool's empty pate has learnt to be knowing and free. So children of wisdom make use of the fools, and use them whenever you can as your tools. J.M.K. End footnote. Spoken without verse and rhyme and applied to our case, the consensus sapientium consists in this, that the consensus gentium counts as a folly. 111. The Origin of the Religious Cult If we go back to the times in which the religious life flourished to the greatest extent, we find a fundamental conviction which we now no longer share, and whereby the doors leading to a religious life are closed to us once for all. It concerns nature and intercourse with her. In those times, people knew nothing of natural laws. Neither for earth nor for heaven is there a must, a season, the sunshine, the rain may come or may not come. In short, every idea of natural causality is lacking. When one rows, it is not the rowing that moves the boat, but rowing is only a magical ceremony by which one compels a daemon to move the boat. All maladies, even death itself, are the result of magical influences. Illness and death never happen naturally. The whole conception of natural sequence is lacking. It dawned first amongst the older Greeks, that is, in a very late phase of humanity, in the conception of Moira, enthroned above the gods. When a man shoots with a bow, there is still always present an irrational hand and strength. If the wells suddenly dry up, men think first of subterranean daemons and their tricks. It must be the arrow of a god beneath whose invisible blow a man suddenly sinks down. In India, says Lubbock, a carpenter is accustomed to offer sacrifice to his hammer, his hatchet, and the rest of his tools. In the same way, a Brahmin treats the pen with which he writes, a soldier, the weapons he requires in the field of battle, a mason, his trowel, a laborer, his plow. In the imagination of religious people, all nature is a summary of the actions of conscious and voluntary creatures, an enormous complex of arbitrariness. No conclusion may be drawn with regard to everything that is outside of us, that anything will be so, and so, must be so, and so. The approximately sure, reliable are we. Man is the rule, nature is regularity. This theory contains the fundamental conviction which obtains in rude, religiously productive, primitive civilizations. We latter-day men feel just the contrary. The richer man now feels himself inwardly, the more polyphonous is the music and the noise of his soul, the more powerfully the symmetry of nature works upon him. We all recognize with Goethe the great means in nature for the appeasing of the modern soul. We listen to the pendulum swing of this greatest of clocks with a longing for rest, for home, and tranquility, as if we could absorb this symmetry into ourselves and could only thereby arrive at the enjoyment of ourselves. Formerly it was otherwise. If we consider the rude, early conditions of nations or contemplate present-day savages at close quarters, we find them most strongly influenced by law and by tradition. 
The individual is almost automatically bound to them and moves with the uniformity of a pendulum. To him, nature, uncomprehended, terrible, mysterious nature, must appear as the sphere of liberty, of voluntariness, of the higher power, even as a superhuman degree of existence, as God. In those times and conditions, however, every individual felt that his existence, his happiness, and that of the family and the state, and the success of all undertakings, depend on those spontaneities of nature. Certain natural events must appear at the right time, otherwise be absent at the right time. How can one have any influence on these terrible unknown things? How can one bind the sphere of liberty? Thus he asks himself, thus he inquires anxiously. Is there, then, no means of making those powers as regular through tradition and law as you are yourself? The aim of those who believe in magic and miracles is to impose a law on nature, and, briefly, the religious cult is a result of this aim. The problem which those people have set themselves is closely related to this. How can the weaker race dictate laws to the stronger, rule it, and guide its actions in relation to the weaker? One would first remember the most harmless sort of compulsion, that compulsion which one exercises when one has gained anyone's affection. By imploring and praying, by submission, by the obligation of regular taxes and gifts, by flattering glorifications, it is also possible to exercise an influence upon the powers of nature, inasmuch as one gains the affections. Love binds and becomes bound. Then one can make compacts by which one is mutually bound to a certain behavior, where one gives pledges and exchanges vows. But far more important is a species of more forcible compulsion, by magic and witchcraft. As with the sorcerer's help, man is able to injure a more powerful enemy and keep him in fear. As the love charm works at a distance, so the weaker man believes he can influence the mightier spirits of nature. The principal thing in all witchcraft is that we must get into our possession something that belongs to someone. Hair, nails, food from their table, even their portrait, their name. With such apparatus we can then practice sorcery. For the fundamental rule is, to everything spiritual there belongs something corporeal. With the help of this we are able to bind the spirit, to injure it, and destroy it. The corporeal furnishes the handles with which we can grasp the spiritual. As man controls man, so he controls some natural spirit or other. For this is also its corporeal part by which it may be grasped. The tree and, compared with it, the seed from which it sprang. This enigmatical contrast seems to prove that the same spirit embodied itself in both forms, now small, now large. A stone that begins to roll suddenly is the body in which a spirit operates. If there is an enormous rock lying on a lonely heath, it seems impossible to conceive human strength sufficient to have brought it there. Consequently, the stone must have moved there by itself, that is, it must be possessed by a spirit. Everything that has a body is susceptible to witchcraft, therefore also the natural spirits. If a god is bound to his image, we can use the most direct compulsion against him through refusal or of sacrificial food, scourging, binding in fetters, and so on. In order to obtain by force the missing favor of their god, the lower classes in China wind cords round the image of the one who has left them in the lurch, pull it down, and drag it through the streets in dust in the dirt. You dog of a spirit, they say. We gave you a magnificent temple to live in. We gilded you prettily. We fed you well. We offered you sacrifice, and yet you are so ungrateful. 
Similar forcible measures against pictures of the saints and virgin when they refused to do their duty in pestilence or drought have been witnessed even during the present century in Catholic countries. Through all these magic relations to nature, countless ceremonies have been called into life, and at last, when the confusion has grown too great, an endeavor has been made to order and systematize them, in order that the favorable courses of the whole progress of nature, i.e., of the great succession of the seasons, may seem to be guaranteed by a corresponding course of a system of procedure. The essence of the religious cult is to determine and confine nature to human advantage, to impress it with a legality, therefore, which it did not originally possess. While at the present time we wish to recognize the legality of nature in order to adapt ourselves to it. In short, then, the religious cult is based upon the representations of sorcery between man and man, and the sorcerer is older than the priest. But it is likewise based upon other and nobler representations. It premises the sympathetic relation of man to man, the presence of goodwill, gratitude, the hearing of pleaders, of treaties between enemies, the granting of pledges, and the claim to the protection of property. In very low stages of civilization, man does not stand in the relation of a helpless slave to nature. He is not, necessarily, its involuntary bondsman. In the Greek grade of religion, particularly in relation to the Olympian gods, there may even be imagined a common life between two castes, a nobler and more powerful one, and one less noble. But in their origin both belong to each other somehow, and are of one kind. They need not be ashamed of each other. That is the nobility of the Greek religion. 112. At the sight of certain antique sacrificial implements. The fact of how many feelings are lost to us may be seen, for instance, in the mingling of the droll, even of the obscene, with the religious feeling. The sensation of the possibility of this mixture vanishes. We only comprehend historically that it existed in the feats of Demeter and Dionysus, and the Christian Easter plays and mysteries. But we also know that which is noble in alliance with burlesque and such like, the touching mingling with the laughable, which perhaps a later age will not be able to understand. 113. Christianity as Antiquity When on a Sunday morning we hear the old bells ring out, we ask ourselves, Is it possible? This is done on account of a Jew crucified 2,000 years ago who said he was the Son of God. The proof of such an assertion is wanting. Certainly in our times the Christian religion is an antiquity that dates from very early ages, and the fact that its assertions are still believed, when otherwise all claims are subjected to such strict examination, is perhaps the oldest part of this heritage. A god who creates a son from a mortal woman, a sage who requires that man should no longer work, no longer judge, but should pay attention to the signs of the approaching end of the world, a justice that accepts an innocent being as a substitute and sacrifice, one who commands his disciples to drink his blood, prayers for miraculous intervention, sins committed against a god and atoned for through a god, the fear of a future to which death is the portal, the form of the cross in an age which no longer knows the signification of the shame of the cross. How terrible all this appears to us, as if risen from the grave of the ancient past. Is it credible that such things are still believed? 114. What is un-Greek in Christianity? The Greeks did not regard the Homeric gods as raised above them like masters, nor themselves as being under them like servants, as the Jews did. They only saw, as in a mirror, 
the most perfect examples of their own caste, an ideal, therefore, and not an opposite of their own nature. There is a feeling of relationship. A mutual interest arises, a kind of symmetry. Man thinks highly of himself when he gives himself such gods, and places himself in a relation like that of the lower nobility towards the higher, while the Italian nations hold a genuine peasant faith, with perpetual fear of evil and mischievous powers and tormenting spirits. Wherever the Olympian gods retreat into the background, Greek life was more somber and more anxious. Christianity, on the contrary, oppressed man and crushed him utterly, sinking him as if in deep mire. Then into the feeling of absolute depravity it suddenly threw the light of divine mercy, so that the surprised man, dazzled by forgiveness, gave a cry of joy and for a moment believed that he bore all heaven within himself. All psychological feelings of Christianity work upon this unhealthy excess of sentiment, and upon the deep corruption of head and heart it necessitates. It desires to destroy, break, stupefy, confuse. Only one thing it does not desire, namely, moderation. And therefore, it is in the deepest sense barbaric, Asiatic, ignoble, and un-Greek. 115. To be religious with advantage. There are sober and industrious people on whom religion is embroidered like a hem of higher humanity. These do well to remain religious. It beautifies them. All people who do not understand some kind of trade in weapons, tongue and pen included as weapons, become servile. For such, the Christian religion is very useful, for then servility assumes the appearance of Christian virtues and is surprisingly beautified. People to whom their daily life appears too empty and monotonous easily grow religious. This is comprehensible and excusable. Only they have no right to demand religious sentiments from those whose daily life is not empty and monotonous. 116. The Commonplace Christian If Christianity were right, with its theories of an avenging God, of general sinfulness, of redemption, and the danger of eternal damnation, it would be a sign of weak intellect and lack of character not to become a priest, apostle, or hermit, and to work only with fear and trembling for one's own salvation. It would be senseless, thus, to neglect eternal benefits for temporary comfort. Taking it for granted that there is belief, the commonplace Christian is a miserable figure, a man that really cannot add two and two together, and who, moreover, just because of his mental incapacity for responsibility, did not deserve to be so severely punished as Christianity has decreed. 117. Of the Wisdom of Christianity It is a clever stroke on the part of Christianity to teach the utter unworthiness, sinfulness, and despicableness of mankind so loudly that the disdain of their fellow men is no longer possible. He may sin as much as he likes. He is not essentially different from me. It is I who am unworthy and despicable in every way says the Christian to himself. But even this feeling has lost its sharpest sting, because the Christian no longer believes in his individual despicableness. He is bad as men are generally, and comforts himself a little with the axiom, We are all of one kind. 118. Change of Front As soon as religion triumphs, it has for its enemies all those who could have been its first disciples. 119. The Fate of Christianity Christianity arose for the purpose of lightening the heart, but now it must first make the heart heavy in order afterwards to lighten it. Consequently, it will perish. 
120. The Proof of Pleasure The agreeable opinion is accepted as true. This is the proof of the pleasure, or, as the church says, the proof of the strength, of which all religions are so proud when they ought to be ashamed of it. If faith did not make blessed, it would not be believed in. Of how little value must it be, then? 121. A Dangerous Game Whoever now allows scope to his religious feelings must also let them increase. He cannot do otherwise. His nature then gradually changes. It favors whatever is connected with and near to the religious element. The whole extent of judgment and feeling becomes clouded, overcast with religious shadows. Sensation cannot stand still. One must therefore take care. 122. The Blind Disciples So long as one knows well the strength and weaknesses of one's doctrine, one's art, one's religion, its power is still small. The disciple and apostle who has no eyes for the weaknesses of the doctrine, the religion, and so forth, dazzled by the aspect of the master and by his reverence for him, has on that account usually more power than the master himself. Without blind disciples, the influence of a man and his work has never yet become great. To help a doctrine to victory often means only so to mix it with stupidity that the weight of the latter carries off also the victory for the former. 123. Church Disestablishment There is not enough religion in the world even to destroy religions. 124. The Sinlessness of Man if it is understood how sin came into the world, namely through errors of reason by which men held each other, even the single individual held himself, to be much blacker and much worse than was actually the case, the whole sensation will be much lightened, and man in the world will appear in a blaze of innocence which it will do one good to contemplate. In the midst of nature man is always the child, per se. This child sometimes has a heavy and terrifying dream, but when it opens its eyes it always finds itself back again in paradise. 125. The Irreligiousness of Artists Homer is so much at home amongst his gods, and is so familiar with them as a poet, that he must have been deeply irreligious, that which the popular faith gave him, a meager, rude, partly terrible superstition. He treated as freely as the sculptor does his clay, with the same unconcern, therefore, which Aeschylus and Aristophanes possessed, and by which in later times the great artists of the Renaissance distinguished themselves as also did Shakespeare and Goethe. 126. The Art and Power of False Interpretations All the visions, terrors, torpors, and ecstasies of saints are well-known forms of disease, which are only, by reason of deep-rooted religious and psychological errors, differently explained by him, namely not as diseases. Thus, perhaps, the daimonion of Socrates was only an affection of the ear, which he, in accordance with his ruling moral mode of thought, expounded differently from what would be the case now. It is the same thing with the madness and ravings of the prophets and soothsayers. It is always the degree of knowledge, fantasy, effort, morality in the head and heart of the interpreters which has made so much of it. For the greatest achievements of the people who are called geniuses and saints, it is necessary that they should secure interpreters by force who misunderstand them for the good of mankind. 127. The Veneration of Insanity 
Because it was remarked that excitement frequently made the mind clear and produced happy inspirations, it was believed that the happiest inspirations and suggestions were called forth by the greatest excitement, and so the insane were revered as wise and oracular. This is based on a false conclusion. 128. The Promises of Science The aim of modern science is, as little pain as possible, as long a life as possible, a kind of eternal blessedness, therefore, but certainly a very modest one as compared with the promises of religions. 129. Forbidden Generosity There is not sufficient love and goodness in the world to permit us to give some of it away to imaginary beings. 130. The Continuance of the Religious Cult in the Feelings The Roman Catholic Church, and before that all antique cults, dominated the entire range of means by which man was put into unaccustomed moods and rendered incapable of the cold calculation of judgment or the clear thinking of reason. A church quivering with deep tones, the dull, regular, arresting appeals of a priestly throng, unconsciously communicates its tension to the congregation and makes it listen almost fearfully as if a miracle were in preparation. The influence of the architecture, which, as the dwelling of a godhead, extends into the uncertain and makes its apparition to be feared in all its somber spaces. Who would wish to bring such things back to mankind if the necessary suppositions are no longer believed? But the results of all this are not lost, nevertheless. The inner world of noble, emotional, deeply contrite dispositions, full of presentiments, blessed with hope, is inborn in mankind, mainly through this cult. What exists of it now in the soul was then cultivated on a large scale as it germinated, grew up, and blossomed. End of Third Division, The Religious Life, Part 1